Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. It appears the Syrian government is making its final assault on the last rebel-controlled enclave in the country. Syrian and Russian jets have been bombing targets around Idlib this week, resulting in alarming casualty numbers and a conflict that already has a ghastly body count. All eyes have been on Idlib for the past year, as the government offensive has been held in check for the most part by a Russian and Turkish agreement, but that appears to be crumbling. Joining the crisis next door to talk about this development is Professor Joshua Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Landis, thank you for joining us here in The Crisis Next Door. It's a pleasure. Professor Landis, we've seen a significant ramp-up in government attacks on rebel positions around Idlib. Do you think that this is indeed the final assault? Uh, no, I don't think it's the final assault. But it, it is an attempt, at least uh, for the time being, to gain access to the main highway that goes from Damascus to Aleppo, the great northern capital of Syria. The, uh, the rebels that hold Idlib province have held on to that highway. The Turks, in making the agreement with the Russians over this no-conflict this no zone, had agreed to give the government access to that highway and that jihadist groups would have to withdraw in a, um, a no-weapons zone that would include the highway region. But that didn't happen. It didn't materialize. In fact, the more jihadist groups, um, Hayat sham HTS is the short symbol for it, um, has conquered over 90% of the province since the agreement was first worked out. And that means uh, um, it has the more radical jihadist groups have taken over the more moderate groups, some of which had worked with the United States in the past. So the situation, the Russians and the Syrians feel that they have, uh, they can move ahead with this armed incursion because the Turks haven't fulfilled their side of the bargain. At least that's what they're saying. How critical are these highways for the rebels? It's very important for rebel control because they can stop the regime from uh, from building up forces in the north of the country, from helping the economy come back and stopping Syrian reconstruction and and defying the government, which is the point of the rebels, which still hope to topple the Assad government. So any, you know, any gains by the government, particularly this major uh, highway and artery for economic revitalization of Syria is important. You mentioned HTS. That is the main jihadi group in Idlib. There are some other rebel groups in Idlib as well. As a coalition, if you can even call them that, are they strong enough to withstand much of an assault from the Syrian army as well as Russian bombers? 
No, they are not. The, 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 ultimately, it's Turkey that protects them. And it's also the United States that protects them uh, because the United States has been warning Syria not to do this and has saying that there'll be consequences. It's also estimated that around 200,000 of the 3 million people in Idlib have already fled to the Turkish border to escape the fighting. Now, what is Turkey going to do with more refugees on its hands? Well, that's the, uh, that is the real rub here because many Syrians have fled into this rebel enclave. As the Syrian government rolled up the, um, the rebel militias in Syria over the last few years, rebel fighters and their families have fled north, and now they have been bottled up in this Idlib province. And uh, so there's quite a few refugees. Some people are saying as many as 3 million people living in this province. The Syrian government says it's a lot less than that, probably less than 2 million. We don't know exactly how much, but there are a lot of people there. And the main objection to the United States, uh, for the United States, of the, any kind of military incursion is that it will create very possibly a humanitarian disaster and a flood of refugees that would go into Turkey. Many of the jihadist fighters that are there would also flee into Turkey and could be spread into Europe. So this is something the West doesn't want. They want them contained in Syria. Members of the Syrian army have boasted that this time there will be no green buses for the rebels and that they will be buried under rubble. Seemingly a reference to Islamic State supporters getting bussed out of that group's last enclave in February. How bad is this going to get if you've got members of the Syrian army saying these kinds of things? Well, that is, uh, you know, almost every advance of the Syrian army has um, been preceded with this kind of rhetorical flourish and, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth and and uh, trying to scare the other side. That's not unusual. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to go all the way, but eventually they will go all the way. The Syrian government and the and President Assad have repeated endlessly that they're going to take back every inch of Syrian territory. That's their objective. And Russia has repeated those, saying that, that, that Syria should be sovereign and recognized as sovereign over all of its territory. In fact, Every major power, the United States, the European powers, all say that Syrian sovereignty should be uh, recognized. Of course, they would like to recognize it with a different government, but none of them want a divided Syria at the end of the day. Syria is essentially carved up into three zones of control. Syria, with generous backing from Iran and Russia, controlling most of the country and the major cities, while Turkey has the northwest part of the country and the U.S.-backed Kurdish-Arab coalition in the east. Is it a pipe dream for Assad to think that he can regain control of the entire country? I don't think so. Um, you know, it, it all depends on how much energy and money the U.S. and Turkey want to spend defying him in Syria. You know, will the U.S. help the Kurds continue their ownership over 30 percent of the country? That's the real question for the Northeast and uh, maybe the United States will be willing to stay there forever. Um, it's possible the U.S. could do that. It doesn't cost that much money. But um, it is a big commitment because the Kurds are only about 2 million people. They don't have an air force and they're poor. So without the United States paying for their efforts, uh, supplying them with air power and keeping soldiers on the ground, they will collapse. 
so you could compare it to Afghanistan a little bit. Uh, we have been in Afghanistan, the United States, that is, for close to uh, 20 years now, 18 years now. And it seems that the American government is getting tired of it. Uh, we're negotiating now with the Taliban. You know, I think 17 years ago, everybody would have said America will not allow the Taliban to run Afghanistan again. But that today looks very different. So I think that the United States and the Assad government is counting on the United States to eventually get bored uh, with staying in northern Syria. Do you see the Kurds trying to work with the Assad government or perhaps turning to the Russians for some help if the U.S. does indeed depart? Absolutely. Uh, already the Kurds have been carrying out negotiations with the Assad government. The United States has warned them not to do this. Um, but that's because the Kurds were not sure of America's position. The Kurds would like America to stay and help them develop an independent nation or quasi-independent nation in the north of Syria, the same way that the United States helped Kurds in the north of Iraq uh, establish an autonomous zone there. But President Trump, beginning in December of last year, started to say that he would withdraw and that America was going to bring all of its troops home. This caused widespread panic amongst the Kurds, and they began to negotiate with the Assad government uh, because their worst enemy is the Turkish army. And they fear that if the Americans withdraw, Turkey would invade this enclave in northern Syria and could um, kill many of them. So they look to Assad as their protector after the Americans. Of course, they would much prefer the Americans who've got a lot more money and are much more well disposed towards the Kurds. Would Damascus see the Kurds as a buffer against Turkey? Uh, yes, it does. And it always has. Uh, it, it must be remembered <clears throat> that Damascus um, gave Ocalan, that's the leader of the YPG, and the, the Kurdish party that runs northern Syria. Um, Damascus gave Ocalan a office in Syria in the 1970s, helped to arm him, and used him as a cat's paw against Turkey in negotiations. So the reason that the Kurds, this party of the Kurds, dominates northern Syria is largely because it had a fairly close alliance with the Assad government. When the United States stepped in to protect them, they much preferred to be with the United States because the United States could offer them independence. But should the United States withdraw, Turkey, uh, the Kurds will look to Damascus again for protection against Turkey, and Damascus will need the Kurds because... The Kurds and Damascus have been allied against Arab rebels in the region uh, since the beginning of the Civil War. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the Syrian army's offensive against Idlib with Professor Joshua Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Moscow has accused Ankara of not doing enough to get rid of the rebels from the buffer zone in Idlib. Are relations framed between those two countries, and what does that mean for Syria? I don't think relations are disintegrating between Turkey and Russia. Turkey is very important for Russia. And we have to remember that Turkey was a member of NATO since 1952. This was a real thorn in the side of Russia. It is a tremendous accomplishment 
of President Putin to have brought Turkey away out of this European embrace and American embrace into a Russian sphere of influence. Of course, Turkey is playing both sides uh, and Russia has to be sensitive to that. But Russia does not want to sacrifice Turkey. Yes, relations are frayed a bit uh, over Syria and the Kurds. But I think that's just uh, that's, you know, that that's the problems of doing business. Russia will look at Turkey as a very important ally. Do you see Ankara remaining in northern Syria at all cost in order to prevent serious Kurds from helping out Turkish Kurds? That is what Turkey says it's going to do. The real question is, <clears throat> what is the future of Assad Erdogan relations, of Turkish and Syrian relations in the future? In the past, they were very warm before this uprising in 2011. Turkey and Syria worked closely together. Erdogan and Assad were able to take down the borders. There were tons of mines across the border. Turkey and Syria had always been at daggers drawn, and they got very warm relations. Um, tariffs were dropped. Trade blossomed. There were very close relations between Turkey and Syria. Included in those relations was the Syrian government policing its Kurds so that it could not fund or help the PKK, the major Kurdish uh, opposition group in, in Turkey, or not opposition group, but insurgency in Turkey. And if that sort of relationship between Turkey and Syria can be reestablished, which is, I think, Russia's objective, then um, Turkey could withdraw from Syria, and Syria could get back all of its territory. Of course, it will be very difficult for Erdogan and Assad to patch up their relations because things uh, became because the enmity grew very, uh, very strong during the, the war years. That would be quite the feather in Putin's cap if he could bring Ankara and Damascus back together, wouldn't it? Absolutely. That, that would be, uh, you know, tr um, Putin would definitely trumpet, trumpet his, his um, you know, statesmanship if he could do that, because it would demonstrate a real win over the United States um, and, and show that Russia was, had rebuilt its sphere of influence and that it's king in the northern Middle East. We haven't gotten to Iran yet. How critical is Assad's survival for Iran? How important is maintaining a presence in Syria for Iran as a buffer against Israel? Uh, it's crucial. Iran looks at Syria and southern Lebanon as being part of its domestic security interests. It believes that Israel will bomb Iran. If it cannot um, provide some kind of balance by having Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and Syria as close allies, because Syria guarantees that Hezbollah can get arms and so forth. So it sees this as a strategic deterrent towards a future Israeli bombing raid on uh, Iran's, Iran's nuclear facilities and so forth. So this is extremely important. Also, Iran fears that the United States and Israel might carry out some kind of regime change uh, in Tehran, the way it did in Baghdad, so, or Libya. So th this is extremely important to have that strategic deterrent 
for Iran. We now have increased worries over a possible conflict between the U.S. and Iran, with the U.S. moving more warships into the Persian Gulf. What does that mean for Syria? Could that at all mean an even worse time ahead for Syria? Or is that a conflict that would largely take place out of the sphere of Syria? This is bad news for Syria. You know, Syria and Iran are are under tremendous sanctions, which have caused currencies in Iran, the currency in Iran, to really collapse 50 percent inflation this year. So people in Syria and Iran are hungry. There are no jobs in Syria, it's much worse than in Iran, but their situation is only going to get worse because as the tensions ratchet up, the United States is going to double down on sanctions. It's going to punish any country that does any trade with each of them or, or sends money into each of them. So I, you know, America is tremendously strong. 70% of all international commerce is done in dollars. By switching off SWIFT codes, that means banking and being able to transfer money into these countries. The United States has tremendous power. It can starve Syrians and Iranians, and it's going to do it, uh, at least if we take um, the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration seriously. I think that both countries are in for a very difficult time over the next two years. Is it likely that Iran would use its proxies in Syria to attack the small U.S. contingent or the U.S. allies and the Kurds? You know, that's going to be extremely difficult. Um, I don't think there will be any direct action. The the American troops that are in Syria, about 2,000, stay in their bases largely. When they do come out, they come out to strike at, uh, you know, ISIS and other enemies. But for the time being, they're really uh, confined to their bases. They're helping the Kurds, but it's the Kurds who are vulnerable. Syria doesn't want it, and Iran don't have much interest to get into a fight with the Kurds. What they will do, and they will try to do as an ongoing strategy, is to sow dissension within this multi-ethnic northern Syria that the United States is helping to rule. Because there are a lot of differences between the Arabs and Kurds in this region, between Assyrians and Christians. There are tons of different ethnic groups. Many of them don't like each other. Their relations has been exacerbated by the presence of ISIS and all of this warring over the last several years. So there's tons of blood feuds. It will be the policy of Turkey, Syria, Iran to um, to help ignite those differences and make it much more difficult for the United States to bring stability to its little region there. Even if the regime is successful in eventually taking back Idlib, possibly wrest control back of the northwest from Turkey and the east from the Kurds, how will Damascus rebuild Syria's ruined economy? Where will that support come from? <laughs> Boy, if I could answer that question, I'd be making a lot of money now. <laughs> uh, that, that is not at all clear. The United States has um, made it very clear to all the European powers that they are not to um, they're not to normalize relations with Syria in any way. Also to the Gulf countries. There are some Gulf countries that have opened up their embassies in Damascus, the UAE, uh, Kuwait, but the U.S. is um, arm wrestling with them not to normalize relations and to stop any money coming in from Syria in the hopes that they can uh, really pressure Assad and Iran. So it's unclear how Syria is going to rebuild over the next decade because the war has not ended. 
it's just transformed into this larger geostrategic struggle between the United States and Russia, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and they're all fighting out um, their hostilities on Syrian territory and in the Syrian economy. So the Syrian people are going to suffer for many years to come. Will Moscow provide economic support for Syria like it did military support? You know, they're supplying some support. So is Iran. But ultimately, they're not going to make money out of Syria. As long as this war uh, continues, the economic war, there isn't much money to be made in Syria. So nobody wants to invest. It, It is similar to the United States in Iraq or in North Syria. The U.S. has no interest in spending more money in those places. It's trying to stabilize them, but it doesn't want to invest, and private investors are not going to touch it. So there really is not much interest in um, pouring money into these um, very beaten-down regions. It doesn't seem like there is much hope for Syria to rise above being a weakened state subject to extremism and foreign power plays any time in the near future, is there? Um, you're absolutely correct. That That is, you know, Syria, after independence, 1946, Syria was really a banana republic in the Arab world for over two decades. There were perhaps 20 coups back and forth, tons of changes of government, instability. It was the playground uh, for the Cold War in that region. And uh, it's going to return to that. The Assad's, for a few decades help Syria punch above its weight in the region, in, internet, in, in regional affairs. But that's because they, were, they used a terrible dictatorship and um, military force to keep their population in line from being divided by suppressing the divisions. And that way it could play in Lebanon and in other areas amongst the Palestinians who were divided. But now... It's Syria that's divided, and the other countries in the region are all going to play with those divisions. Not much hope on the horizon for Syria. Professor Landis, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on The Crisis Next Door. It's a pleasure. We've been joined by Professor Joshua Landis, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 